0: We are continuing in our series on Ephesians this morning. Paul has spent a significant amount of time in Ephesians in building the theology of the church. The church is made up of those whom God has called from before the foundation of the world to be redeemed in his son, sealed by his spirit, united in a body with people from every tribe and tongue and nation, Sanctified for the glory of God to be magnified in us and ultimately commanded to walk, to live for his glory. We've been examining the commands to walk in a manner worthy of his calling, how we can walk or live for his glory We looked at the general call to walk in a manner worthy in the first part of Ephesians chapter 4, being united with all the gifts and resources that God has granted to us for that purpose. We looked at the command to walk with renewed minds, rejecting the futility of unbelief, remembering the freedom that our new life in Christ affords us. We looked at the command to walk in truth. Speaking truth to one another, refusing to indulge in anger, working hard to bless one another, encouraging one another with our words, and forgiving each other in any offense. Last week, we looked at the command to walk in love. The world says that it knows love and has established love as the greatest virtue, but it knows nothing of God's love. Christians are called to walk in love by imitating their Heavenly Father. They're called to walk in love, specifically the kind of love that Christ demonstrated, His sacrificial, others-oriented, God-glorifying love, as shown in His sacrifice on the cross. Believers are called to walk in this kind of love because anything less is unworthy of the kingdom and deserving of the wrath of God. Our passage for this morning continues in that same vein. Paul exhorts the church to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ, worthy of our new life in Christ, our identity as children of God. In 1 John chapter 1, John says that God is light. The idea of God being light is similar to the idea of his holiness. He is unique. There's no one like him. He's separate other than his creation. He's greater. More specifically, he is morally pure. He is upright. He is righteous. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we are children of God, children of the light, then our lives ought to be different. Our lives ought to also communicate that same light if we are his children. Therefore, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 through 14, our text for this morning, we are called to walk as children of the light. Go ahead and turn there if you haven't. We'll read the passage together and then pray. And then we'll go through the text. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. Therefore, do not become partakers, partners with them. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let us pray. Father, again, we come before you, before your throne with um, humble hearts, um, asking that you would speak, for your servants are listening this morning, praying, God, that you would let the words of my mouth, and the meditations of our hearts collectively, that they would be acceptable in your sight as we are exposed to the truth of your word, for you are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are called to walk as children of the light, but how do we walk as children of the light? We walk as children of the light by, first, not partnering with those who will receive his judgment, but living as light in the Lord. That's in verses 7 and 8. Second, by trying to prove what is pleasing to the Lord. That's in verses 9 through 10. And third, by exposing what dishonors the Lord. That's in verses 11 through 14. Not partnering with those who will receive his judgment, but living as light, trying to prove what is pleasing to the Lord and exposing what dishonors the Lord. Let's look at that first point. We are to walk as children of the light. By not partnering with those who receive his judgment, but by living as light in the Lord. Verses seven and eight again. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Once again, the therefore connects this section to the thought in the previous section. He says, do not become partakers with them. Well, who's the them? It's the same them that he referenced in the previous section. Those who are, according to verse 6, sons of disobedience. He's referencing the unbelieving world. Do not become partakers with them. As we discussed last week, they will receive his judgment. They will receive his wrath. You have no part in the coming judgment of God by faith in Christ. Therefore, do not be partners with them. The idea, the idea behind the word to partner is to, quote, have a share with another in some possession or relationship, end quote. One author stressed that the idea is that of identification. It is to be identified with the one with whom you're partnering. We talk about Ben and Jerry's. Nobody knows who Ben is. Nobody really knows who Jerry is. But whenever we say Ben and Jerry's, we know we're talking about ice cream. That's partnership. In context... We should not partner with the unbelieving world, the sons of disobedience, the children of wrath, so as to become identified with their sin. We should not become so identified with them that we cannot be told apart. We are to the contrary, as it says in chapter 3, verse 6, not partners with them, but partakers or partners of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We are to be imitators of God, identified with Christ the gospel and his people not the unbelieving world who will suffer his wrath do not partner with them do not become partakers with them do not walk in their counsel do not join in their sin do not imitate them again we should not be identified with their sin and its consequences perhaps this means for christian business owners that you must be careful with whom you partner in business if you associate with yourself with an unbeliever when it comes down to it whose business practices are going to win out This certainly means that a believer should never pursue an unbeliever in marriage. Again, whose life practice will win out at that point? I've heard this issue come up time and time again. The believer assumes that they can or will eventually convert their unbelieving spouse. And while that is possible, it's not promised. And it's unwise to enter into that kind of permanent relationship with an unbeliever. You're just setting yourself up for trouble. Well, Paul talks about this whole issue in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. There he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. But ultimately, this applies to all things. We should not be so closely associated with the unbelieving world and their practices that we are identified with their sin. In the immediate context, this applies to sexual immorality. We talked about that last week. But it also applies to the corrupt talk that we discussed earlier. To bitterness, to wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. It applies to all manner of unrighteousness, as Paul described in Romans chapter 1 verse 29. Evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, hating God, insolence, haughtiness, boastfulness, inventing of evil, disobedience to parents, Foolishness, faithless, heartless, ruthless. All manner of unrighteousness. He's saying we should not be associated with any of it. We should not partner with unbelievers. We should not become so closely identified with them that you cannot tell the difference between them and us. Now we know this means that, this, that we cannot completely disassociate ourselves from the outside world. That's not what the text is saying here. If that were so, then we wouldn't be able to fulfill the command of this text to walk as children of the light. The only way that we can walk as children of the light is if there is darkness. A light doesn't make a difference if there's light all around you. A flashlight's not going to help you in a fully lit room. A flashlight helps you when you're walking in darkness. So the point's not to completely disassociate from the world. We are going to be in the world, but we should not be of the world. He goes on in verse seven. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Why? For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light. You were that way before, but now you are that way no longer. This is a repeated theme in scripture. We've already read Ephesians chapter two. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, by his grace, you have been saved. Romans chapter 6 verse 17, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. You were once a slave of sin, but in Christ you are now slaves of righteousness. First Corinthians 6 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You all were that way, but you are that way no longer. Because you were washed, sanctified, and justified in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Do not be partners with them. You were at one point darkness, now you are light. This is not a new truth. Again, this is the same truth that we've seen many times in Scripture. This is one of those truths that we need to hear over and over and over again as believers. You are new. You have been given new life. Jesus Christ is your new life now. If you say that you have faith in him, he is your life, not your old way of living. You cannot continue to live the way you did before you were a believer. You cannot continue to live like the world because Jesus has given you new life. That either is true or it isn't. If you are new, live like you're new. If you're not new, then you don't belong to Jesus. And if you were to die today, you will die in your sins. Nevertheless, we as believers certainly need to be reminded of this. We need to remind one another of this truth. We need to be praying that the Lord would help us to remember this truth every single day. We were at one time darkness, children of wrath, sons of disobedience, but we are that way no longer we are new. We have new life in Christ. We are light in the Lord and we should walk like it. And that brings us to point number two. We walk as children of the light by trying to prove what is pleasing to the Lord. Look at verses nine and 10. Walk as children of the light for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We see the main admonition of the passage. Paul says, walk as children of the light. Walk or live this way, not that way. The implication is that this ought to be a continual pursuit for the believer. That is what we've been saying throughout this entire section. You and they, the unbelieving world, are not alike. You have nothing in common with them. Walk or live like your life is different, like it has changed, like it is new in Christ. If you are children of God, you should walk as children of the light. We've seen Paul use this term children already in the letter. He called the unbelieving world children of wrath in chapter 2. He calls us beloved children in chapter 5. Now he uses it again. He says we are to walk as children of the light. Children are a chip off the old block. If you call someone a child of something or a son of something, you are saying that they are essentially that thing. They're so closely identified with that thing that even if it's not biologically true, it's practically true. We are to walk as children of the light. First John 1 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. When John says this, he's indicating that there's something about the character of God that is akin to light. He's not saying that light is God. That is that would be blasphemous, but rather he's saying that God is light. There's something about God that is as the quality of light. He goes on, if you say that you have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, you are lying. But if you walk in the light as he is in the light, then you have fellowship with one another, all who have trusted in him. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses you from all sin. Those things are either true of you or they are. You're either walking in the light and therefore you have fellowship with all who walk in the light. And therefore Jesus' blood cleanses you from all sin if you are walking in the light. If you're not walking in the light and God is light, then you're not in God. You don't have fellowship with others who walk in the light. And Jesus's blood is not cleansing you from his sin, from your sin. John eight twelve, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We talked about this text during Advent season. Jesus says, whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you follow the light of the world, then you will not walk in darkness because you're following the light of the world and you will have the light of life. Now that, again, is either true of you or it isn't. Either you're following the light of the world and not walking in darkness because his light shines on you and in you, or you're not. Either you have the light of life or you do not. If we are children of God, who is light, by faith in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God and the light of the world, then again, what must be true of us? We must also be light in the Lord. This is how our salvation is described. First Peter 2, nine. you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Colossians 1.13, he, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. 2 Corinthians 4.6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Therefore, 1 Thessalonians 5.5, You are all children of light, children of the day. In our passage, walk as children of the light. Well, how can we walk as children of the light? Look back at verse 9. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, we walk as children of the light by discerning or proving what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, the idea is the issue of righteousness. Righteousness has been defined as the the fulfillment of expectations in any given relationship. There are certain expectations that come with any relationship, and if those expectations are met, then one can say that they have achieved righteousness with respect to that relationship. Obviously, in most human relationships, we don't speak of righteousness in that way. But in terms of our relationship with God, he does have certain expectations for us, his law. Those expectations are clearly defined in his word. But in order for us to claim righteousness before him, we must satisfy those expectations. Keep that in mind. Our text says that the fruit of light, we understand what fruit is, right? You know, a tree by its fruit, you call a pear tree a pear tree because it bears pears apple tree is an apple tree because it has apples growing on it, not oranges. So the fruit of light produces all that is right and good. In other words, the effect of light in the life of man is righteous living. All things that are good and right and true. That is the fruit that is born from light, if you are a child of light. Now in theology, when we talk about righteousness, we often distinguish between positional righteousness and practical righteousness. God has made us righteous in Christ. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Romans 1.17. The free gift of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. Romans 5.17. Many are made righteous in him. Romans 5.19. Also 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1 summarizes it this way. For our sake he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin. Jesus. So that in him. We might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus to be sin. He sacrificed him as a sin offering. Him who knew no sin. Jesus didn't know sin. He never sinned. He always obeyed the will of his father. That's what made him the perfect sacrifice. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. Our unrighteousness is exchanged for his righteousness, in other words. This righteousness, the positional righteousness, again, positional versus practical, position, who we are, our status. This positional righteousness, being made righteous, is a result of our faith in Jesus Christ. So that we may say as Paul in Philippians chapter 3 verse 9, That I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. God's kind of righteousness depends on faith. For us to receive the righteousness of God, we have to trust in the Lord Jesus, in other words. That's what it means to be a Christian. We have been given the righteousness of Jesus. He is called Jesus Christ the righteous in 1 John 2 1. We cannot earn righteousness on our own because we cannot, we cannot meet the requirements of our relationship with God on our own. We cannot earn righteousness on our own because we cannot meet those requirements. We can't be good enough. But when we have faith in Jesus, who is righteous, we trust in his righteousness as the satisfaction of God's requirements. Again, righteousness is all about satisfying the requirements of the relationship. We can't satisfy requirements, God's requirements for our relationship with him, but Jesus did it for us and we're trusting in him. That faith in Jesus is credited to our account and we're given his righteousness, our sins are taken away, we are forgiven. The wrath of God is satisfied in the death of Jesus. Therefore, again, we are positionally righteous in Jesus. When God sees us, he no longer sees our debt of sin. He no longer sees our worthlessness. What he sees for those who trust in Jesus is the righteousness of Jesus on us like a cloak, like a robe. We have been clothed with his righteousness, we say. In him, we are completely covered. Practically, we don't always do what is righteous. Positionally, we are righteous. Our status before God is righteous. But practically, we don't always do what is righteous. But we ought to be pursuing that course. That's what Paul is driving at in our passage. That's why we are called to walk as children of the light. We must be reminded that we ought to be walking in righteousness. I read this passage last week from 1 John 3. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, who? Jesus. Jesus appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Practices sin. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceives you. Again, practice. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Not so that we would continue in those works, right? We ought to be righteous because he is righteous. Now, this is clearly not just righteousness for righteousness sake. It's not just seeking to be righteous so that people would see us as righteous or think that we ourselves are good and right and true. The world does that. They do things that others perceive to be good and right and true in order to be recognized by men. They do it in order to be, quote, on the right side of history. As the course of the world, the ideology of the world flows in one direction, so those in the world want to flow in that same direction in order to prove what is good and right and true according to the world around them. They want to be remembered that way. They want for others to congratulate them for that reason. We, however, as believers, don't pursue righteousness to inflate our ego or for the accolades of men. We don't pursue righteousness to be like the world, to be on the right side of history. For whose sake do we pursue righteousness? Again, verse 10. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We are positionally righteous. Practically, we do not always do righteousness, but we pursue righteousness for the glory of God. To do what is pleasing to him. To discern is to prove it is to test the idea of the word is really more along the lines of illustration we ought to seek to prove or to illustrate what is pleasing to the Lord by our actions and this is ultimately the difference between being moral and being saved this is the difference between being a good person and being a child of God the moral person the good person does good for goodness sake this is the Santa Claus kind of goodness right that's what the song says isn't it be good for goodness sake to be a Christian is to have in your heart motivation not to do what is good or right and true for its own sake. Not for your sake, not even for the sake of others, but rather to do what is good and right and true because it pleases God. It pleases your father in heaven. You want to do what's pleasing to him. This is Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge, I appeal or urge. You, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, your God has been merciful to you. He has been gracious to you. He has saved you. He sent his son to bleed and die for you. He has rescued you from your sin. He's done all of those things and more for you. He's given you the promise of eternal life in Jesus. Knowing that you could not save yourself or redeem yourself or do good enough, he did it for you. By the mercies of God, I appeal to you, I urge you. There's a sense of urgency in Paul's voice in Romans 12. For what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing you may discern, same word, testing, prove. You may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He's saying the same thing there. I wonder, those of you who call yourselves Christian, is that in your heart? Do you daily desire to do what is pleasing to God, to live in a way that is good and right and true by His standards because He is righteous and because He is good? Do you consider that on a daily basis? Do you think to yourself, should I do this? Should I say this? Should I be thinking this? God is righteous. Does this meet his standard? I have been made acceptable to God in Jesus, the righteous one. God has been merciful to me. I should want to do what pleases him. Does this please him? You pray, Lord, help me to desire and do only what is right in your eyes, only what pleases you. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed. So now not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is works for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As he's writing to this church, he says, you guys have obeyed. You've always listened to what I've asked you to do. And you should continue to do that. You should do that with eagerness. You should do that with earnestness, carefully, with fear and trembling. Because God is working in you for that purpose. For what purpose? To do what is pleasing in his sight. Both to will and to do what is pleasing to him. To will and to work what is pleasing to him. To desire and to do what is pleasing to him. That's why God is at work in you, Paul says that's what we ought to be pursuing. That's what we've been called to as Christians, to live a life that proves the will of God, that which is good and right and true. This is a part of what it means to be a child of the light, to walk as a child of the light. Do you walk that way, Christian? Well, we walk as children of the light by not partnering with those who will receive his judgment, but living as light in the Lord. We walk as children of the light by trying to prove what is pleasing to the Lord by our lives. And third, we walk as children of the light by exposing what dishonors the Lord. Again, that's verses 11 through 14. We see both the command to expose what dishonors the Lord and also our confidence. The command is in verses 11 and 12. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. He said earlier, do not partner with them. Again, do not become so closely associated with them, with the unbelieving world, those who are sons of disobedience, that you are associated with their sin and its consequences. You are not sons of disobedience. You are children of God, children of the light. So you should walk in the light. Do not partner with them. Here in verse 11, for emphasis, he he says it again, basically, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Again, in the immediate context, this applies to sexual immorality, but it also applies to the way we speak in all things that we do. Do not participate with them. You should not be pursuing their works. You should not be actively engaging in these things that the unbelieving world engages in expressing their unbelief and expressing unrighteousness. Those things that do not accord well with the relationship with God, those things that do not please him take no part in those unfruitful works. You ought to be pursuing righteousness, that which is good and right and true in the sight of God. Take no part in their life and in things they pursue instead, expose them. Look again at the verse instead Expose them. Expose the unfruitful works of darkness. Do not participate but expose. Now Christians get into trouble all the time for calling out sin. The caricature of Christians that they're always talking about sin and bashing people over the heads about sin. I think that is so much so that we tend not to want to say anything about sin. We've developed this whole response to people. God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And we try to appease the consciences consciences of the unbelieving world and inevitably diminish the heinousness of sin. Just so that we don't offend others. Well, the reality is that as children of the light, we are supposed to expose sin. That is what light does. Light exposes things. If we by our deeds are not exposing sin, then we're not walking as children of the light. Light exposes. It makes things visible. This is the part of the work that we are to do as children of the light. The question is how? How do we expose the unfruitful works of darkness? I think one of the things that this has to mean is that we have to confess our own sin. We should be the first to do that. That's Psalm 32. We read it earlier. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit is no deceit. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. And he says later, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And what is his point? He says, I was at one point covering my sin, trying to hide my sin, trying to keep it away from God which is kind of a foolish notion because God sees everything. He knows everything. He says, I was trying to hide my sin and I felt absolutely awful. He says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. He says, the guilt and the shame that I felt because I have a relationship with God and I ought to be doing what's pleasing to him, but I wasn't and I felt absolutely awful for it. And then I acknowledged my sin. I confessed my transgressions and God forgave. Because that's what God does, He forgives when we confess, when we say the same thing that He that He says about our sin, and we're humble about it. He he forgives our sin because He is good. He forgives our sin and He surrounds us with His steadfast love. That's the confession of a believer. We're not to be like the world. They cover over their sin. They make excuses for their sin. But we ought to be quick to confess our sin. We do struggle with sin. We are not, again, practically always pursuing righteousness, though we should be. We don't always do what is right in the sight of good, though we should. And when we don't, we need to be quick to confess. Because we know the one who is perfect and right and true. Because we know that there is forgiveness in him. We expose sin by confessing sin. We expose sin also by simply calling it what it is. That means that as we're conversing with others about things that are clearly sin according to God's word. We just call sin what it is. When you speak to your children for example. It's not the terrible twos. It's just sinful disobedience. It's not boys will be boys. It's sinful disobedience. It's not girls just have a little attitude or sass. It's sinful disobedience. Label it sin for them so that they understand as they grow up that they live in a world where sin is accounted for and not swept under the rug or ignored or excused. Teach them that they live in a world where they're held accountable for sin because the God who made the world and all things in it holds us all accountable for sin. And so we should call sin what the Bible calls sin. Especially to our children. Children who grow up with no sense of sin or accountability for sin. But who have parents who excuse their sin in various ways become adults who do the same. Sin becomes another pious religious term that has no actual meaning in life. Only within the walls of the building of the church. And we now have a whole generation of those who have no concept of God. No concept of sin. No concept of judgment. And that becomes evident in the way they live. Certainly this also applies to calling out sin within the fellowship of believers. We're to confess our sin to one another. James 1.16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We have the responsibility to speak the truth to one another and to call each other to righteousness. Ephesians chapter 4.25, speak the truth in love. When we don't speak up concerning sin that we see in other fellow believers, then we make ourselves complicit in their sin. Furthermore, it shows us to be unloving toward them. The opposite. That's the exact opposite of love. Love says, I want your best. I have your best in mind. I want what is best and right for you. And what is best and right for them is for them to have a right relationship with God. And so we have to pursue them. And we're dishonoring the God who is light if we don't call out sin in the fellowship. Again, this is the essence of love in the Christian fellowship. This is where rubber meets the road. When we see someone caught in sin, we draw them closer to the light. We don't push them away. Sometimes we're repulsed by the sin of others. We're worried that their sin will affect us or others. That, but love dictates that we draw them to the light. We expose their sin to the light so that ultimately they may be restored. Again, we're children of the light and so we should be pursuing light ourselves and we should be calling one another to the light when we see sin, not to remain in darkness. Ultimately, when we talk about church discipline and particularly cases where there's unrepentant sin, that's the goal. The goal is restoration. The goal is to draw them back to the light. Again, moving on, Paul says in verse 12, it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Again, speaking of the unbelieving world, in our day, shameful things are no longer done in secret, but they are no less objectively shameful. In context, the shameful things that they do is not measured by what another human being thinks is shameful, but rather those things are shameful because they disregard the righteous standard of God, what he thinks is good and right and true. Again, if we're children of the light, then we must speak up about the things that are shameful in God's eyes. We must confess our own sin. We must call sin what it is before others, our families, our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ, even before the world, no matter how shameful those acts may be. That means that when we have conversations with unbelievers, our goal when we have those conversations is not to be argumentative or to win arguments. Unfortunately, due to social media, I think we become so adept at speaking out against injustice and inequality and all of these other social issues that we forget the point is not just to make our voices heard. But rather to ensure that as long as it depends on us, the person sitting apart across from us is exposed to the truth, to the light of God's word. That's the goal. It's not to be right. It's not to be the best argument or debater in the conversation. It's to expose them to the truth of God, to bring them to the light, to bring the issue to the light, to expose it to the truth. I think the flip side of that coin is not just exposing them to the truth of whatever issue it is, but to make sure that the gospel is clear. Some marquees, you read on these uh, church marquees outside that I've, I've read sometimes in, in multiple different places where they'll say, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. And I think that's absolutely wrong. The gospel must be spoken with words. The gospel, the truth of God must be spoken with words. Yes, we ought to be living out the gospel. But if anyone is to understand the truth of the gospel, it has to be proclaimed with words. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How should they hear without a preacher? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Chapter, Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And the gospel is the power of God to save those who believe. Romans 1, 16. Well, again, we are to expose what dishonors the Lord. That means we confess sin in our own life, call sin what it is before others, proclaim the gospel with our lips. We are to let the light of God shine through us. That was a command in verses eleven and twelve. Expose with dishonors the Lord those unfruitful works of darkness, speak up about sin. Here's our confidence in verses thirteen and fourteen. But when anything is exposed to the light it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We expose sin not to make ourselves feel better or to make others feel worse or again to win arguments, but we expose sin so that it can come to the light. Our desire in exposing sin is really for that purpose. This is true whether we expose the sin of a fellow believer or those who are outside of Christ. We expose sin in hopes that it will lead to redemption, to restoration. That's the only way that people will come to the knowledge of the truth. When anything is exposed to the light, Paul says it becomes visible. Anything that becomes visible is light. I love the way that Paul refers to conversion in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same God who in the beginning said, let there be light and created all things, has done a similar sort of thing again in us. Those who were walking in darkness, he called out to us and saved us by helping us to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Meaning before we came to faith in Jesus Christ, when we saw Jesus, we didn't see the glory of God. We may have seen a good teacher. We may have seen a good moral person. We may have mocked or ridiculed him because we thought that that Jesus stuff was foolishness. But when God did a work in our heart, when he said, Let there be light, he pulled the veil from our eyes. Paul says in that same passage that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see that light. But God pulls the veil from our eyes so that when we look at Jesus, we don't just see a good person, a moral man. We see the glory of God in his face. And we desire the glory of God in him. And the gospel is the power to do that. Again, Paul says in Romans chapter one, six, 1 verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God to save those who believe. When we proclaim the truth of the gospel, when we bring people and expose people to the light of the gospel, God opens their eyes so that they can see in the face of Jesus his glory. He describes it this way in verse 14 Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And that's ultimately our confidence, beloved. Not in our ability to do good enough works to save those around us by example. Not that we'll do good enough works and people will say, hey, I want to be like you. Not that our words will be convincing enough. But rather that as we walk as children of the light, as we seek to expose the sin of the world around us, that God is able to shine in the hearts of the unbelieving world so that they may see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. I wonder do you believe that Christian. Are you living as if that is true. Are you walking as a child of light today. Are you rejecting the darkness of the world around you seeking to live in a way that pleases your father in heaven the father of light. Are you exposing sin and sinner by exposing them to the truth of God and to the gospel. This is the way. This is God's way of using his people to draw others to the light. And so again, we are commanded in this passage to walk as children of the light. And may God make that true of all of us. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, which is true. Thank you for your word, which sanctifies us. Thank you for the gospel and for the work that the gospel has done in our lives Thank you for being the God who said in the beginning, let there be light and for making it possible for us to see the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of your son, Jesus. Otherwise, we would still be walking in darkness. Thank you, Father, for reminding us of the truth that we have been made new, that we have been saved, we have been sanctified, we have been set apart. So we ought to walk as children of the light. We ought to reject the foolishness of the outside world. We should not be partners with them. Instead, we are to walk as children of the light, seeking to do what is pleasing to you, all that is good and right and true. And we ought to expose sin. We ought to be that bright light shining in the darkness by our good works, the good works that we've been called to walk in, but also by our proclamation of what is true, by speaking the truth in love, by proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Father, I pray that you would make those things true of us, not for our good alone, but for your glory and for the good of those who hear us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.